Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended by revitalising our natural resources, minimising waste and maximising human potential. I trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Greetings, Wastebusters. Welcome to April's episode of the Waste Not Want Not podcast. I have to tell you, I felt like the Easter Bunny had delivered a truckload of chocolate eggs when my delicious guest, Bruce Lipton, agreed to give me an interview. Bruce is a fun, down-to-earth stem cell biologist with a wealth of wisdom he's acquired working in the field of science for over 50 years. He's mastered the art of alchemizing a state of well-being and happiness using the magic of the mind. It's a timely interview since the symbolism of Easter is associated with fertility, rebirth and growth. Conditions that are conducive to change, the global chaos we're all experiencing. The climate is ripe with so much untapped potential and opportunity to evolve and create heaven here on earth. It's time to wake up. Nature has been sounding the alarm for the past five decades or more. We can't keep pressing the snooze button and ignoring the evidence. I discovered Earth Day that we now celebrate on the 22nd of April was created in 1970 because of growing concern from the public for living organisms, the environment and the inextricable links between pollution and public health that author Rachel Carson wrote about in a book she published called Silent Spring in 1962. The book was labelled as controversial, raising fierce opposition from chemical companies because she documented the environmental harm caused by the indiscriminate use of pesticides. Public uproar pressured President Kennedy to order the Science Advisory Committee to examine the issues raised in the book, which culminated in the chemical compound known as DDT to be banned and the author vindicated. In 2006, Silent Spring was named as one of the 25 greatest science books ever written because of the way it highlighted the negative effect humans have on the natural world. But guess what? We're still doing it, despite growing evidence and another groundbreaking publication from the Club of Rome in 1972, which also created media controversy and impetus for the global sustainability movement because it confronted the unchallenged paradigm of continuous material growth and the pursuit of endless economic expansion. A review 50 years on substantiated the fact that the ecological footprint of humanity substantially exceeds its natural limits every year, emphasising the need to rethink the linear economic models and shift to converging with nature's cyclic system. It's time to take a leaf out of Rachel's book and make a stand for nature. We can't afford to be complacent any longer. As she said, complacency is a dangerous state. Our leaders are failing us. 
Consistent conferences that spout promises are not being actioned. The public has the power to create the change we want to see. And you are a valued member of the global community that can make that difference. While I'm on the subject of ineffectiveness, it would be remiss of me not to mention Anzac Day on the 25th of April, a stark reminder of the futility of war. It's a day that commemorates the courage of the Australian and New Zealand Army troops who landed in Gallipoli. What a waste of precious lives. So here we are 50 plus years on having made little progress. Our planet is still diminishing and our health is deteriorating at a rapid rate. It's time to connect with the cyclic force of nature and put a stop to being coerced to fit in with the incessant linear demoralising system. I can think of no one better to help us than my esteemed guest Bruce Lipton, who received the Goy Peace Award in 2009 for his contribution to a more peaceful world. He's a man who role models the founding principles of the organisation. He's known worldwide for transcending duality to create an inclusive, holistic global community. Buckle up and listen to Bruce Lipton explain the microcosm of the cell and the macrocosm of the mind so you appreciate the infinite inherent power you have to master your own destiny. The better we know ourselves, the less we fear and the more able we are to consciously create the much needed shift to harmonise people and the planet as the unified field of intelligence that it is. Good morning to you, Bruce. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast with me. I've been following your work for about 15 years now, and I love the fact that you're a nonconformist. More to the point, you have the courage of your own conviction. And when you know something, you can't unknow it and you just keep going. And you've been a pioneer in the world of STEM biology and studying since the 1970s. And you've developed the field of science in epigenetics. So I think it's probably a good point to start. What is a stem cell? (laughs) Well, let's start with this point. That a human body is not a single entity. It's made out of 50 trillion amoeba-like cells that come together and make a community. And uh, these cells, some of them have very short lifespan. And actually, uh, out of the 50 trillion cells, every day, we lose hundreds of billions. These are numbers that are so big. Hundreds of billions of cells die every day, normal attrition, skin cells, hair cells, gut cells, things are blood cells dying all the time. To stay alive, obviously, at some point, you have to start replacing those cells that are dying. And so uh, mixed in with our body cells are special cells called stem cells. But let me give you the real name. The real name was embryonic cell. And that's what they were called just before you were born. And then the moment you're born, you can't say embryo anymore. So then we call them stem cells, but they're embryonic cells. And what do they do? They replace the dying cells, no matter what kind of dying cells they are, they're embryonic cells. They can make skin, muscle, bone, they can create everything. So uh, the question is, do you have stem cells that grow stem cells? I go, if you're watching this show and you're still alive, which helps, you have stem cells. 
because you wouldn't be here without them. So all of us have these embryonic cells in our body, and their job is to replace the uh, dying cells that happened every day. As a matter of fact, every minute we lose millions. Just you and I talking in the last few minutes, both of us have lost millions of cells. Uh, numbers, again, are so very big. <laughs> you know, I, I calculate, if you wanted to count the number of cells in your body, the 50 trillion cells, uh, one at a time, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. If you did this day and night, okay, yeah, how long would it take you to count 50 trillion? It'll take you a million years. <laughs> wow. That's a number that it's so big that it's like you can't imagine it, but it's so easy to say, especially governments when they spend trillions of dollars. Another interesting little factoid. If you took a trillion dollars, uh, U.S. dollars, which are six inches, so that means two of them end to end is a foot, it would stretch from here past the sun, uh, million, millions of miles. Yeah. You don't really grab how much 50 trillion is. It's very large. <laughs> it's quite phenomenal when the inner workings of the body is, as you say, it's a community. And that is what one of the things I really love, because if there's a problem here, everything that's around it, it's the entire community that is affecting that one thing. And it, it goes back to quantum physics and everything is constantly changing. As you say, the cells are updating and replenishing all the time. So we've got to look at the whole big picture, which is one of your fortes, isn't it? And it's what's happening inside us, which is where I come from, is affected by what is happening outside us. And that is where your epigenetics come in. Well, you listen, when I was teaching in the medical school, what I was teaching was a concept called genetic determinism. This is a belief that the public still holds, yeah. and yet it's totally false. And yet the people walk around, yeah, genes controlling my life. I say, no, don't control your life. And that was the belief that genes which are blueprints for the body's proteins, which are the building blocks of the body. So your anatomy is due to the production of proteins by genes. That's who we are. It was always said, oh, genes turn on and genes turn off. And I go, well, wait a minute. <laughs> a gene is a blueprint to make a protein. I go, so what? And I say, it's a blueprint. And I go, so what? I say, go into an architect's office and she's working on a blueprint. And you ask her, you say, Hey, is your blueprint on or off? She would look at you like, what are you, crazy? There's no on and off to a blueprint. I go, precisely. Genes are not capable of being what is called self-emergent, meaning genes do not control their own activity. Genes are blueprints. You need the architect. And then all of a sudden that comes to your specialty, Philippa. The architect is the mind which is designing your life. And all of a sudden it says, well, then your mind is affecting your genetics. I go, the mind controls my genetics and it controls. And then the genetics then influence your biology and your behavior in the world. So going all the way back from genes, which are just blueprints up to the mind, which is the architect. Why is this important? Because the story that almost everybody has out there is like, we got these genes. Uh, I didn't pick them oh, as far as I know. And I say, well, uh, if you don't like the characteristics, can you change them? I say, no, you can't change the genes either. And I go, well, wait. And then we also say, genes turn on and off by themselves. I say, we have programmed 
people to believe that the genes control their lives and they don't control the genes. We are programming people to be victims. The new science says, no, no, it's the mind and the environment that's controlling the genes. I go, so relevance? I can change my mind and I can change my environment. And all of a sudden it says, wait, I am actually master of my genes, not victim. And that consciousness alone is the consciousness of self-empowerment because people believe I'm a victim. That means I have no power. Now we're talking about, no, no, you control the genes. You have the power. And if we would teach that to the world, then the health crisis that we face every day would disappear because less than 1% of disease is connected to genes. Over 90% of disease is connected to what? Stress. Mm. Oh, that's something we have control over if you understand it. And that means then you have control over your health. And that's the message that you've been working on your life. And that's the message I've been working on in my life as well. So uh, thank you for this opportunity to talk to uh, our wonderful audience, because really the, the message that we both have been trying to say for years is we are very powerful. And exactly. Yet- and it can be very confusing if you're stuck in a stressful situation. But if you see uh, and appreciate the science behind it, where you took the stem cells and put them in different environments, how they responded differently, the same cells had yes. a different response according to the environment around it that is evidence in and of itself and that helps and i've also heard you speak of you weren't aware of how the science and spirituality were actually naturally one and the same things symptom yeah. science <laughs> can you expand on that for the audience uh, yeah well, the first thing it says as you mentioned my experiments back 50 years ago is I put a single stem cell in a Petri dish, single embryonic cell. It divides every 10 or 12 hours. At the end of a week, 30,000 cells, all of them from the same parent, so they're all genetically identical. As you mentioned, I separate the 30,000, putting 10,000 each into a different Petri dish, but all the dishes have genetically identical cells. As you also mentioned, I change the conditions, the environment, This is the key coming here. We grow cells in what is called culture medium of fluid. What is culture medium? This is the catch. It's the laboratory version of blood. And so if I grow human cells, I say, well, what is human blood made out of? Then I synthesize in the lab culture medium with those components and put it into the culture dish. I can change the composition of that culture medium and change the environment. So I have three dishes, all genetically the same as you mentioned, but I create three different versions of culture medium, three environments, let's say A, B, C. And I say in environment A, the cells form muscle, in environment B, the cells form bone, and environment C in a third Petri dish with a different environment, but genetically identical cells, they form fat cells. And the question is, well, what controlled the fate of the cells? I go, well, wait, they were all genetically identical. So the thing was, it wasn't the genes that activated the difference. It was the environment, the culture medium was controlling the genetics, okay? Controlling above the genes. The genes turn on and off by themselves. I say, no, no, that's that doesn't happen. But the consciousness above, the environment above the genes is what is controlling the genes. And so above means in Latin, epi. 
So I say, what, what do I call skin? I say epidermis. I go, what does that mean? I say, well, just below the skin is a layer called dermis. And so the skin is above the dermis. So we say epidermis. I say the control is above the genes. I say, oh, it's called epigenetics. And that's the difference uh, from the old vision, genes control us, genetics, new science, epigenetics, victim, genetics, master, mind in epigenetics. So now the one transition piece that'll then connect all this. And I say, well, I was growing the cells in a plastic Petri dish and the environment was the culture medium. And then I go, when you look in the mirror, and I mentioned earlier, uh, you're made out of 50 trillion cells. And we are skin-covered Petri dishes underneath our skin. I have 50 trillion cells in this dish. Yeah. But I also have the original culture medium, the original one, blood. So here's the point. Yeah. It doesn't make a difference if the cell is in a plastic dish or the cell is in the skin dish. It's still controlled by the environment. So my cells in my body, 50 trillion of them, are controlled by the composition of the blood, which is the composition of the culture medium. And I go, great. Then two questions come up. The blood chemistry is controlling my genetics. Who or what controls the blood chemistry? The brain is the chemist that puts all the chemicals in, okay? Uh, and then comes the final, and this is the big one that, you know, changed my whole life. You know, I've taken a step by step, but to tell you, but the next step was, well, wait, then what chemicals should the brain be putting into the blood? And then all of a sudden, this is the answer and the world changes. I say, whatever picture you hold in your mind, the brain translates that picture into complementary chemistry. A picture of love has chemistry like dopamine for pleasure, oxytocin for bonding, growth hormone. So I say, yeah, when you have a picture in love, guess what? You're healthy, you're vital. Oh, see how they glow? They're in love. And I go, that glow is the chemistry of love being put into the blood. But in contrast, fear chemistry, stress hormones, and things that affect the immune system go into the blood. So that's a different environment. I go, absolutely. And guess what? Different fate. So if I'm in love, that enhances growth and vitality. But the chemistry of fear shuts down the growth and puts you in hiding protection. Protection is wall off the world. Yeah. Growth is open up the world. So when we're in protection, we're not doing growth. We're in protection. We're walling off to prevent the outside from coming in and infecting us. Well, you can't be in growth and in protection at the same time. Why? Growth is open. <laughs> protection is closed. So the protection response that you and I studied years and years ago, the adrenal system, fight or flight, that was, you know, stress, get us ready to run from that saber-toothed tiger. I go, yeah, that, that's exactly what the, those stress hormones are to do when you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. Uh, you got to save your life. It's not time to grow and take care of the body and be relaxed. It's time to run. What organ systems do you need when a saber-toothed tiger is chasing you? You need your arms and legs. You don't need your pancreas so much or your stomach, or you don't need those things right now. You yeah. need your arms and legs to run away. Okay, now here's the catch. Where does the energy come from to run? I go, it's in the blood. When you're in a state of stress, the blood is preferentially sent to the arms and legs. Why? The blood, which carries the energy, 
in my arms and legs so I could run. And I say, the blood was preferentially sent to the arms and legs. I go, where was the blood before the stress hormones? They were in the gut. <laughs> and I said, well, what are the blood doing there? They provide energy for taking care of the body, maintenance, filtering the stuff, cleaning, repairing. So all the visceral functions keep your biology in running shape. So now I say, no, wait, a saber-toothed tiger is chasing me. I have to take the blood from the gut and get it to go to the arms and legs because that's where I need the energy right now. So the stress hormones shut the blood vessels in the gut, squeeze them shut. And, and that makes a feeling. That's why people, when they start to get afraid or a little fear, they say, I got butterflies in the stomach, a little fluttery. The fluttery are blood vessels squeezing shut like this. Oh, and wow. you could feel it in the body. Yeah. And it feels fluttery. I said, but what's the result? Well, when the blood vessels all shut in the gut, it puts the blood to the arms and legs so I can do running. And what else does the, the, the stress hormones do to save energy? Because remember, it's energy you need to run away. Um, the immune system uses a lot of energy. And I go, what do you mean? I said, well, if you've ever been sick, you probably didn't have the energy to get out of bed. Yep. I go, oh, the immune system uses a lot of energy. So now I put up a situation and I go, oh, guess what? <laughs> you have a bacterial infection and you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. I say, how much energy do you want to fight the bacteria? And how much energy you want to use to run away from the tiger? Yep. And the answer is no brainer because it's, who cares about the bacteria? Because if the tiger catches you, I don't think bacteria is your problem anymore. <laughs> so basically it says, I do not want the immune system to run when I'm running from a saber-toothed tiger because I need all the energy. So stress hormones shut down the immune system to conserve energy. Uh, and I always emphasize how effective this is, is that when doctors want to transplant a foreign organ into a recipient, let's say a heart, a lung or something, they don't want the recipient's immune system to reject that graft because it's foreign. So before they do the transplant, they give the recipient stress hormones. For what reason? It shuts down the immune system so the transplant isn't rejected. Stress hormones are so good at shutting off the immune system, they use it therapeutically to shut off the immune system. So I go, okay, now we have two issues with stress. One, I shut down the growth of the system. Two, I shut down the immune system because I don't want to use that energy. And then lastly, and this, I, this one I call adding an insult to an injury. <laughs> When you're in a stress situation, thinking to make a response is a very slow process. Conscious thinking takes time. Interesting. The same response with the stress hormones squeezing the blood vessels in the gut. The stress hormones squeeze the blood vessels in the forebrain, conscious part. I was going to say, how does it affect the brain? Oh, yeah. Well, you don't have time to think when you're running. you got to react. And so when you squeeze the blood vessels in the forebrain of the gut, it pushes the blood to the hindbrain. That's where reaction occurs, okay? Reaction responses. And I go, so what's the point? You're not thinking. <laughs> when you're under stress, you just go to reaction. We become less intelligent when we're under stress because we're not thinking anymore. So I say, okay. This doesn't sound like a very good set of things to happen. Shut down the growth, shut down the immune system, shut down the intelligence. I go, well, that was to run away from a saber-toothed tiger. I said, well, that's about 10 minutes if you make it. If you made it after 10 minutes, there's no more saber-toothed tigers. So I guess what? No more stress. 
So stress historically was only used for a short period of time mm. to escape a threat. Once the threat was escaped, you go right back to health again, immune system, thinking and all that. But as you know, and as I know, and as all those people out there listening to us know, today stress isn't 10 minutes. <laughs> stress is like 24, 7, 365, and it gets worse every day because the world is in a state of chaos and stress every day is increasing. I go, what's the result of that? I said, the health crisis every day is getting worse. More and more and more people are getting sick. And with all the money that they've thrown into the health system, it's not helping anybody. And the reason is this. The cause is not a body concern. The cause is a consciousness concern. Uh, and of course, being a, you know, a psychologist, you and I are talking on the same page right here. <laughs> yeah. But it's time for the audience to recognize this. The health issues they face, less than 1% is due to genes. 90% is stress. 90%. That includes heart issues, uh, cancer. Diabetes type 2, which is actually 100% lifestyle. The issues we are facing today are actually issues that we could control if people knew the nature of their health and how it's controlled. And this is not forthcoming from the medical people because they depend on you believing you're a victim. <laughs> because if you're a victim, then you'll pay them any amount of money to heal them. It's interesting. My, my brother had hepatitis C and uh, finally a drug company comes up and says, well, we have a pill. That, oh, because now you don't have to die from hepatitis C. And I say, great. How much is the pill? It's $100 a pill. Like, oh, that's expensive. How many pills do you need? A thousand pills. I go, okay, excuse me. What's the prescription for hep C? A hundred thousand dollars. And it's like, especially in our country here in the U.S., where people don't have health care, yeah. $100,000 is not even possible. Mm -hmm. That's all of a sudden, you have a disease that we can heal, but you don't have the money. Yeah, but hold it. There's a worse one. I'm not a happy guy with pharmaceuticals. <laughs> right? The worst story that I could tell you from pharmaceutical right now is this. There's a neuromuscular disorder that babies have when they're born. And that this specific disorder uh, results in the baby dying in the first few years of its life. Three, age four, it's going to die. This, this is, the, you know, a built-in issue, okay? And of course, a pharmaceutical company not that long ago came up with an ability to prevent that. Like they created a genetic kind of thing that if you take this, you can save the baby's life. And I go, oh, that's great, great, great. And then I say, and how much does this cost? One million five hundred thousand dollars to get the prescription a woman just has a baby she just gave birth to this baby and then she hears that the baby has this disease is going to die within two or three years and then the pharmaceutical guy comes up we can save that we can help you save your baby one million five hundred thousand dollars you know you might as well hold a gun to that woman's head and say, if you don't give us a million five hundred thousand dollars, your child's going to die. I go, well, that's what they're doing. The humanity of this system does not exist. No, it's it's definitely been taken away. And um, one of the things that you're talking about the love hormones and how that can really—it's about where you put your energy. And self-love is bantered around a lot. And I've heard you say like eighty percent of people. Find oh, no, let's say 80 to 90, 80 to 90. Can't say I love myself. 
because they're so programmed to say all the bad things about themselves. How do you override that? And how does it help us? Do you have any tricks up your sleeve? Because I know it's been a massive journey for you. Yeah. Could you share part of your personal journey as to how you've evolved? Yeah. Well, the first thing is this. Once we start talking away from the genes and start getting to the mind, then you start regulating the mind is controlling your biology, your behavior, your life characteristics. And then uh, we also find out this, and this is critical, people. The conscious mind's creative. But there's another mind called subconscious mind. It's different. Two different minds, but they work together as one. The conscious mind is creative. The subconscious mind is habits. For example, we learn to walk before we're two, and we make a program that's in the subconscious. Subconscious is habits, how to walk. Thank goodness, because you could live to 102 and still be walking from the original program you got it to. Yeah. So once the programs are in, they become a lifelong experience at that point. And there are good programs, how to walk, how to talk, uh, how to drive a car. That becomes a program. Anything you repeat that becomes a program facilitates your life because you don't have to relearn it every day. The brain is like a computer. It's not like it is a computer, okay? And like any computer, you can boot up the computer, but you can't use the computer until you put programs in. In other words, you can buy a brand new computer with no programs and it boots up. And I said, do something. He said, I can't do anything. I don't have a program. Well, the brain is exactly the same. It boots up in the last trimester of pregnancy. The brain is ready to go, but needs programs. So nature created the first seven years of a child's life. The brain is not at a higher vibration that we call consciousness, okay? The brain is at a lower vibration called theta. Theta is characterized by imagination. That's what kids have under age seven. They can have an imaginary world and a real world, put them together. The one that's always fun is the tea party. You pour nothing into the cup <laughs> and you drink nothing. And then you say, that was the best tea I've ever had in my life. In so easily. It's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> and then we start to find out, oh, my God, that was theta. That was imagination. And this is particularly important. You know, I, I like to throw this in because parents don't really realize the significance of this. It's during that first seven years, they get the idea of Santa Claus and their belief system, theta, imagination. Santa Claus is real. Santa Claus is coming around the whole world, giving everybody toys and presents. And you don't find that Santa Claus is not real until after you're age seven. Very big disappointment. And also, you know what? You don't have as much trust in your parents <laughs> because when they tell you something, oh, you told me about Santa Claus. You told me about the Easter Bunny. All of a sudden, you lose a little bit of belief in your parents because those imaginary things you took on as real and then find out after age seven, they're not. So whatever programs we got before age seven, they control uh, the subconscious. And then here's the last piece. I said two minds. Conscious minds, creative wishes and desires. Heaven on earth, love, health, happiness. The conscious mind is not only looking out. So imagine your, your body is a vehicle and it's got a steering wheel. I say, when the conscious mind has got the hands on the wheel, the conscious mind is taking the biology to the destination of wishes and desires, love, health, happiness. That's what I want to drive my vehicle, okay? But then I also say, but the conscious mind, besides driving the vehicle, can think. Thinking is not looking out. Thinking is looking in. 
today is Wednesday. And if I said to you, Filippo, or anybody in the audience right now, I say, tell me what you're doing on Friday. There'll be a moment, if it's not written in front of you, of course, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, on Friday I'm doing this. I said, where were you that moment? I said, I was inside my head, yeah. thinking. I go, well, thinking is not looking out. Thinking is looking in. So I said, what if you're driving the vehicle, you start thinking? I said, you're not looking out the window anymore. I go, uh-oh. <laughs> and this is real life. <laughs> I am driving the vehicle. I am paying attention to where I'm going. And I start thinking, guess what? I'm not looking out the window. Conscious mind is not looking out the window. Conscious mind's thinking. It went inside. I go, oh, this could be dangerous. I go, no, because the subconscious is autopilot. When the conscious mind is busy doing something, the subconscious mind steps in and drives. Okay. And I go, so relevance to that? And I say, well, these come from your programs. Where did I get those programs? Ah, during the first seven years when you were in that state of imagination, it's also hypnosis. So that for the first seven years, a child is like a video recorder. Whatever it sees, it downloads because it just copied the behavior and downloaded it. So you watch your parents, your mother, your father, you see how they behave. Guess what? You're not just watching them. You're downloading behavior, your father's behavior, your mother's behavior, your siblings, your community. This is how we learn to become members of a community, members of a family because of all the rules. They just download by watching and then downloaded the rules. But then I said, well, then the habits in your subconscious mind aren't yours. You got them mm -hmm. from observing other people. So when your conscious creative mind is thinking, it's looking inside, it's not looking out, subconscious steps and grabs the wheel and drives, but it only drives according to the program. Yeah. And if the programs, I'm sorry, I mean, this is a part that you and I are very familiar with, but the public really needs to know, is up to 60% of those programs that we downloaded by observing others are disempowering, self-sabotaging, or limiting in their beliefs. The biggest self-sabotaging one was the topic that I started 20 minutes ago and I'm coming back to is parents act like coaches on a team to try to get their kids to respond. I said, well, how's a coach on a team behave? I said, well, the player isn't doing well. The coach doesn't go, oh, please do better. No, the coach comes up and says, that's not good enough. Who do you think you are? You don't deserve to be on this team. An older child, not in that theta, but in a higher consciousness, recognizes, oh, the coach wants me to do better. I'm not doing well. I'm going to try and do better. But if a parent acts as a coach to a kid under seven, this kid under seven is not conscious. They're in record. Yeah. I say, so what do they hear? Mm -hmm. I'm not good. Enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not deserving. I say, those are programs. I go, so what? The number, which I didn't say, but now comes out. Only 5% of the day are we driving with our wishes and desires. 95% of the day, our life is controlled by the programs in the subconscious mind. Well, if they were sabotaging programs, I would see them. And I go, nah, that's where you're wrong. The reason is this. You're not observing the world when you are playing the program because your consciousness is not looking out. It's looking in. So whatever behavior is coming out, you're the only one that doesn't see it. I've given the story for 40 years. <laughs> you have a friend and you know your friend's behavior and you know your friend's parent. And you see one day that your friend has the same behavior as their parents. So you, you got to say something. You go, hey, Bill, you're just like your dad. 
back away from Bill. I knew ex- exactly what Bill's going to say. Bill's going to say, how can you compare me to my dad? I'm nothing like my dad. Uh, everyone laughs and they think that's funny and they've experienced it. That's the most profound story in the world. Why? Everybody else can see that Bill behaves like his dad. Bill's the only one that doesn't see it. I go, well, how come? I, I said, I just did. I told you that when Bill is thinking, the conscious mind is not looking out, it's looking in. So whatever behavior is coming out, Bill's the only one that doesn't see it. And where did he get his behavior from? He downloaded from his father. So when Bill is thinking and not looking out, the behavior that he's playing is from his father, but he's the only one that doesn't see it. And the conclusion of this wonderful story, we are all, we do this every day. We're not running our lives with our conscious wishes and desires. Only 5%, 95% of the day, we play programs that were downloaded in the subconscious, 60% of which are self-sabotaging. And then you wonder why we struggle. We didn't struggle because the universe says you can't have stuff. We struggle because our own consciousness says we can't have stuff. So how can the practice of self-love help override those programs that tell us we're not worthy and we're not lovable and all the rest of it? Let's say, first of all, let's tell the truth. 80, 90% have a program that they don't have self-love. Yep, yep. Uh, and I say, well, what's the consequence? I can tell you what the consequence is. I had 40 plus years of that. Uh, and the reason is this. Where did I get my relationship skills? In the first seven years, I observed my father. Yep. But my father and mother had a dysfunctional relationship. So what did I download? Because I was recording and downloading. I downloaded behavior of my father, which actually wasn't creating any love in that whole thing. And so basically, I had lousy skills at creating relationships. Why? Because when my subconscious would play, it would play my father's behavior, which would push any woman away from being in contact with me in that sense. So the point about it is, if you don't love yourself, then guess what? No one else can love you. Because if someone says, I love you, and you're thinking, I'm not lovable, then you say to that person, you have no quality control. I'm not lovable. You didn't see it, but you chase them away because you can't love yourself. And if you love yourself, guess what? The things that would irritate you from the outside virtually disappear. Because you say, I don't care. They don't affect who I am. I'm a happy guy. I love my life. And I'm not going to let those things interfere. And when you get 80, 90% of the people whose childhood programming during that first seven years, and they get all these negative self programs, they don't love themselves. And they're seeking love because that's built into us. And they seek love and they get a divorce and they get married again. They get another divorce. They get married again. They get another divorce. They go, what's going on? And the answer is this. Their programs don't support love. And so they seek it. Uh, okay, okay, I got to tell the story now because now you're pushing me, Flip. I got to tell the story here. <laughs> the story is this. The movie, The Matrix, it, people say, oh, that's science fiction. I go, no, it's really a documentary. And what do you mean documentary? I said, what's the premise? We've all been programmed. I go, oh, that's scientifically true. Every one of us got programmed in the first seven years. So that's true. And I said, what else was the movie about? Well, if you take a red pill, you can get out of the program. And what happens then? Then you are the creator. Either the program is creating you or you're creating the program. Guess what? Science has recognized that when we fall in love, we stop thinking. 
we stay mindful, we stay present. I said, why? I said, look, you've been looking for this person your whole life, they show up. Is this the time to think and disconnect and go inside your head? I go, no, this is time to be there and enjoy it. When you fall in love, that is the red pill. And I say, why? Because you stop thinking. And the reason the programs were playing is because you were thinking. So if you stop thinking, then life is controlled by wishes and desires of the conscious mind. And that's how life can be blah, 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 blah. You meet somebody, fall in love, and 24 hours later, you're going, oh, man, life is so beautiful. The food's great. The music's great. Uh, we're old enough. The sex is great, too. And I go, this is really great. <laughs> and I go, how did you go from blah, blah, blah to honeymoon, which is heaven on earth, in 24 hours? I go, what happened? You stop thinking, you stop playing the programs that were sabotaging you, and you start engaging programs of creativity of what? Love, joy, happiness. I go, yeah, that's great. That's called the honeymoon. And then I go, the honeymoon doesn't last. And I go, the honeymoon only works when you stop thinking the red pill. You're not in the program anymore. You're now creating. But when you start thinking again, I go, why would I start thinking? I said, well, you have a job, you have responsibilities, you have things you have to do. And all of a sudden you start thinking. I go, well, then what happens is those programs that were back there that you didn't play because you took the red pill and those very negative kind of programs weren't playing. That's why you have this great relationship. You never use any of those negative programs. And all of a sudden you start thinking in this wonderful relationship you've been in, heaven on earth, honeymoon, and you start thinking the words that come from you now don't come from the conscious wishes mind. It comes from the subconscious program. Mm -hmm. And you start engaging those behaviors that are very negative. Your partner's never ever seen those programs. Why? The day you fell in love, you stopped playing them. Yeah, you, yeah. They never see them. Now you have this great loving relationship, and then all of a sudden you come up with blah, 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 and your partner looks at you and goes, who are you? Where did that come from? <laughs> uh, and yeah. you didn't realize you, you turned it bill. And all of a sudden you were playing your father's or mother's programs, which sabotaged the honeymoon. So it's an awareness of the repeated patterns. But if you're single, whether it's by choice or whatever, self-love is the thing to help you through that transition. And it's mindfulness in the moment that stops the program from playing. Yeah? Right. Because you, if you're not thinking, then that means your attention is looking out at the world. And now you the hands on the wheel. You're going to drive it to where you want it to go. But when you're thinking, you let go of the wheel. Okay. Yeah. So the idea is this: these are programs that are the limitation. And I say, well, what are your programs? And now this is where psychology gets involved, trying to say, let's let's look at your programs. And I go, you know, it's a lot simpler than that. I go, what do you mean? I say, well, ninety-five percent of your life is coming from the program, so your life is a printout of your program. Look at your life. You don't even have to go back ten seconds. You can go right now and recognize. The things that you like that come into your life, they come in because you have programs to acknowledge those things. No problem. But the things that you want and desire and you work hard and you sweat over and you're putting energy into it, you know, I'm putting a lot of effort. I'm going to make it. I'm working on it. I go, why are you working so hard? And the answer inevitably is whatever that destination is, the program you got does not support that destination. And you're trying to use your own energy to override the negative program, putting all that effort in. I go, not really going to work very well because 95% of your day is that 
program and your consciousness is only working a short time. So it does the mathematics, 5% of let's make it work, 95% of it's not going to work. The answer is it's not going to work. The big thing is that is recognizing the high proportion of the automatic programming that overrides everything. The change is a process, so nothing's going to change overnight. And by keeping your eye on the horizon, your desires, your wishes and things, you're not thinking about the repeated program for it to come about again, because it's where attention goes, energy flows. And it's all about quantum physics and energy, basically. You'll create the change that wherever the energy is, don't you? That's the whole idea of it. The whole idea is... Can I redirect my program instead of having that program light up when the stimulus comes in and all of a sudden now I'm not thinking, I'm just reacting because that 95% is habit of reacting. What if I don't respond to that stimulus? I say, oh, well, then you're free. A little side story here. Real astrologers, the you know, not the newspaper ones, but the real ones, they call esoteric astrologers. They have a very important part before they do an astrological reading. They identify how conscious the person is. I said, what do you mean? They recognize that the more conscious a person is, the less they're influenced by the planetary fields and all that. So there's a point that says, if you're unconscious, then I can predict exactly where you're going to go because the energy fields coming in are predictive. But as you gain consciousness, you're less responding to those fields. And all of a sudden, the predictability goes out the window. Why? Because a field could come in and you say, I'm not responding. Oh, then all of a sudden, you are not connected to that astrology. You got free will rather than an unconscious person who is being programmed by the environment. When you have free will, you are the creator of that. And that's why another sign that says, when you become conscious, you become free of the prevailing energy around you. Whether that means people who are antagonistic to you, the more conscious you are, the less you're connected to them. The more conscious you are, the more free you are to create and not be programmed in your creation. You become the creator. So the whole idea is to become more aware and recognize your programs that we just talked about, and then you can change those programs. And once you change the programs, then you are the master rather than the victim in your neural system. That is, I guess, is what helped you see you through decades of resistance from the science world, because it's an inner knowing. Not, I mean, it was founded in science itself, the epigenetics and the stem cells, but it's just that knowing. And so all the resistance from colleagues and things to say that you're off your rocker, basically, you're, you're yeah. the change. Was there. <laughs> I can believe it. I, I was so, there. <laughs> Decades of it. And this is where it's important for people. And this is why I value your contribution to the world. It just goes to show that we're meant to be different. You follow your curiosity and see it through and know it. And ultimately, even if it isn't a mass understanding, it fulfills you as a human being. And this is one of the purposes of the podcast is to Find your destiny, your desire, your wishes. That fills your energy up and helps the momentum move on. Well, there's two parts of that. You were right. One thing that's very important is to say to somebody, so tell me what you want. 
And guess what? A lot of people can tell you what they don't want. Yeah, yeah. But very few people can say, I want this. Well, that's the destination. Let's get out of what I don't want. And we have to focus on what I want. But then you'll find that your programs conflict. And that's where you struggle. I want this. I'm having troubles. That leads people to believe I'm a victim of those people caused the problem. That thing, that caused me, that took away my power. And I go, what? No, no, no. Your own belief system took away your power first and you don't see that you're involved with this because that's the invisible part that's the story of bill you don't see that you're sabotaging yourself and therefore the tendency is the largest portion of the population all perceives i'm powerless i'm a victim life is out of control and i'm not going to want and my life sucks and i go that's a bad projection (laughs) because if you understood you were making this and you could say, well, then why am I having a problem? My answer is because your program is interfering with your destination. And I say, oh, well, that's why first then you have to say, well, what the hell are the programs are? And then that's where we back up. Wherever you're having conflict, it's not the conflict from the outside affecting you inside. It's your own program on the inside that's affecting you on the outside. And that says, let's do something. I hate to use the words, and you probably are familiar that people do not want to hear the word responsibility. <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry, I had, to, yeah. I had to say that. Sorry. Why? Because it is all personal responsibility the way your life is being carried out with a tendency for us to go, oh, it's not me. It's These people are interfering with my life. I'm a victim. I go, you've never been a victim. You've been a creator from day one. Your program's stuck. And that's it. And if you change the program, which you can do, otherwise this would be a lousy interview. (laughs) You can rewrite the program to put in what you want in your wishes and desires and eliminate the negative ones that you downloaded from observing family and community. And then I say, then what would happen? And I go, I can tell you what can happen. If you put your wishes and desires into your subconscious as programs, You can have a honeymoon every day of your life for a hundred years because your conscious and your subconscious will both be creating wishes and desires. You can think and subconscious steps in. Yeah, but if the program when it steps in is the same as your wishes and desires, then the function of the subconscious is to manifest wishes and desires. And that becomes the greatest part of life because you don't have to keep putting in the program. You can think and your subconscious is still going to take you to the honeymoon land. Absolutely. And you magnetize things and you attract that energy. And so, I mean, two of the people, I call you the three amigos, is Greg Braden and Dr. Joe Dispenser. When the three of you get together, it's heaven on earth <laughs> to, us, <laughs> to those listening. And I haven't seen any of you in, well, actually, I saw you in Auckland about, oh, crikey, seven years ago. And I know you're down there in a couple of weeks. You went to the Earthbeat Festival, didn't you, at the end of March? I surely did. I am here in Auckland right now. You know, this is my escape from the United States. (laughs) Why? Because everything is falling apart. The world is in chaos. If you've been surfing the web or watching the news or even looking out your window, you can see the world's in chaos all over. And I go, this is not an accident or coincidence or anything like this. This is an expression of the fact that human civilization is not sustainable. And the planet is reacting and saying, you can't live here anymore. I go, what do you mean? I say, 
if all the populations, if they wanted the whole world today, if they wanted to stay in the behavior that they're in right now, just say, let's keep it just the way it is right now. It requires 1.6 planets to provide for that behavior. But we don't have the 0.6. And the significance of not having the 0.6 is we can't continue living this way. Mm. And this is why the chaos in this world says, you can't do this anymore. We're finding like supply chain can't keep up with the demands and needs anymore. I say, so what is also leading to? He says, you damn well better understand we have to change our behavior very, very fast. I say, how fast? NASA research scientists have identified that within the next two decades, let me emphasize what they say, we are facing, an, and here's the emphasis, an irreversible collapse of industrial civilization. Irreversible is the, the word that I want to emphasize. A lot of people, oh, it'll just get better again. We'll go back and make it the way it was. I go, mm -hmm. you can't go back. That's where the problem came from. We mm -hmm. have to go forward from here. So the idea is we're in a state of change. Going back is not the option at this point. Again, so it talks to the what we're saying. You can't keep repeating the same patterns and expect something different, as Einstein said. Absolutely. Great quote. So that's why. There's struggles because a lot of people want to keep it the same. It's like, no, the supply, the planet, the pollution that we are waste. Our waste is destroying the atmosphere. It's destroying the water. It's destroying the land. Our behaviors are upending the web of life. Hello? <laughs> Hello? We can't do this anymore. That's why the podcast called Waste Not Want Not, because it's about the environmental waste and human potential and connecting the two of them together. I just discovered the other day, because I have a passion for the Antarctic, because my great, great, great grandfather discovered uh, the uh, Ross Sea in Antarctica and the magnetic... The Ross Ice Shelf? It's a Ross Ice Shelf? Oh, my God. I'm talking yes. to you. Oh, my God. That's so important. I know. I know. And they've just discovered plastic in krill, which is the bottom of the food chain. And again, you know, Antarctica is far from everywhere, but those waters travel the world. And for me, it's helped people see the bigger picture of something far away. And it's just heartbreaking. You know, the, our whales are going to disappear because of the krill. One thing I thought is like, okay, so if it's in the krill, maybe the greedy Chinese and Russians who are scooping up all that krill is supposedly to help human health, it's not going to be so good now. So they leave it in the ocean and because of the marine protection, then it'll become less, put it that way. Yeah, it's, a uh, it's interesting. New Zealand has a real interesting understanding that the rest of the world needs to operate from, and that is this, that uh, New Zealand is the only country the British couldn't beat the indigenous people. The only country in the entire British Empire's history that they could not defeat the Maori, the indigenous people, they had to sign a treaty with them. I go, so what's the relevance? I say, in all the other countries like uh, USA, Canada, Australia, the Aboriginal people got pushed aside, lost, and the land taken over. And the significance, it's the indigenous people that know how to deal with the planet because oh. they grew up as gardeners of the planet. And right now we are destroying the garden and we need the indigenous people for the wisdom of let's put this thing back in harmony again. 
But we're not doing that right now. And so the result is, yes, we are facing an extinction process, but we can recover if we understand how to understand the harmony of the planet. And now, I don't want to say this. Yeah, I do want to say this. (laughs) Charlie Darwin is one of the major contributors to the problems of this planet. What do you mean? In his theory of evolution, it's based on what is called survival of the fittest. I said, what does that mean? He says, I don't care about the other ones. As long as I'm the fittest, I screw the rest of the people. Yeah. And all of a sudden there was, then it says, we are out for ourselves. And I say, this is where it fails. We are a community. We are a community with nature. And the more that we take care of ourselves and ignore nature and ignore the other people, the more we are creating an upheaval in the environment. That, in fact, I'm going to say it because I know we're on a Brit situation here, but hold on, Brits, here we go. It was Jean-Baptiste de Lamarck, the French man who created the theory of evolution 50 years before Charles Darwin. And so evolution was a scientific fact by the time Darwin was there. The difference between Darwin and Lamarck is how you promote evolution. (laughs) Darwin, survival of the fittest. Capture all you can, all you want. That's why we have 1% of the people saying, I want all the money. I go, well, look what you've done. You've taken all the money out and the other 90 some percent of the people have no money. What do you think? that This is what NASA was saying. You can't have an unequal distribution of wealth that's that great where 1% owns and the rest are working for 1%. We're enslaved. That's a, a Darwinian approach. Lamarck's approach was everything's in harmony with each other that organisms and their environment are in lockstep harmony. That's what he said in 1809, 50 years before Darwin. He said, when there's a balance (laughs) with people and nature, then it works. And that all organisms are adapting to an environment. But we've broken the adaptation to the point that says, I want more. Why? Darwinian approach. I want more. And I go, you can't have more. (laughs) We have to share. The difference of Darwin and Lamarck is Darwin, it's all for me, and Lamarck, it's it's all for us, and that we have to share. And his theory is more correct because his theory talks about how the environment influences our biology. And I go, oh, guess what? That's the science of epigenetics. <laughs> it goes around, a bit like the heart. You know, the heart is the thing that pumps the blood around the body, and that's the stem of the word courage, basically, and it's following the courage of your own convictions, and it will really fill you up and make you better. So just to round off the interview today, has there been a book and or a person that has influenced you in your life? Well, the person that has most influenced me uh, ever since I was a kid was Albert Einstein. Yeah. Albert Einstein was the most brilliant of people at the time, and yet he was like a kid himself. He would laugh and joke, and uh, and wisdom would just spew out of yeah. this man. So, yeah. yeah, Albert Einstein was the representative of the fact that uh, life and love and consciousness are really the foundation of our experience. And it's not surprising because you mirror his behavior because he went against the grain as well and really believed in what he was doing because it was in his time, you know, you had the church big time going against what he brought up. Yeah, (laughs) the church does not want you to know you have power. Exactly. They will sell you you your power. You'll sell. Just give them 10% and they will make sure that you're going to be okay. 
I, I love it because first of all, they created the concept of hell to scare people. Oh, and then once they scared people, then they said, well, if you don't want to go there, you got to give us some money here and then we'll take care of you. And I go, that was a self-fulfilling business. First scare people that they're going to die and go to hell and then charge them money that you, you don't have to go. Yeah, <laughs> it's huge. The system is completely off balance, isn't it? I'm guessing there might be one of Einstein's quotes that really inspires you, keeps you going, that you keep front of mind. Do you have a favorite? Well, there are two quotes. Uh, one Einstein quote that I really think is that gets to the core of it is The Field. And I want to demonstrate, uh, Lynn McTaggart uh, yeah. wrote a book called The Field, which is great. The Field is the ambient energy. We're in an energy aquarium, okay? The Field. Okay? I love that, energy and aquarium. That's cool. <laughs> And so basically Einstein quote was the field is the sole governing agency of matter, that the energy is shaping our life experiences. And this actually goes back to the same time where Max Planck and Einstein were manifesting quantum physics. Max Planck's quote, which was altered a little bit, but it comes out is the mind is the matrix of all matter. Uh, it's the same as what Einstein was saying. The mind is creating this consciousness, is creating all of this. Uh, and both of them say the same thing. And that if you understand this to be true, then you're going to put a lot more emphasis in your consciousness. You're going to put a lot more emphasis, not on buying toys and stuff. That's a Darwinian thing. How many toys can I get? Well, that means I'm fitter than you are. That's a bunch of BS uh, belief system. Belief system. Okay. <laughs> of course, well, it is, yeah. and, and the significance about all that is that that is a theory that is causing us to pillage the planet to get more things to show how fit I am. When it turns out, it's not things that create life, joy, love, harmony, beauty. These aren't things. These are the source of joy, love, health, happiness. I have uh, three Mercedes and a Tesla, and I think I'm happy. And I go, no, you're not. <laughs> you got four cars you have to take care of right there. Mm -hmm. And you think it's going to make you happy. And it's like, that doesn't make happiness. People say, when I get that, I'll be happy. I say, why wait? Happiness doesn't depend on you getting anything. Happiness depends on you knowing who you are. And I don't have to buy things. I don't have to pillage the planet to get happy. I'm happy because I want to be happy. I'm happy because when I'm happy, I surround myself with people who are also happy. And all of a sudden, then my field, governing field, governing matter, my field is enveloped in happiness because everyone around me this was not my former life. I had a lot of people around me before that would bitch and complain. Blah, 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 blah. And guess what? They're not here anymore. Yeah. <laughs> because the ones that are surrounding me, like yourself, are happy people that have seen how much money didn't determine how happy I am. Enjoying life. Nature. Yeah. <laughs> That's damn beautiful. How much does that cost? I said, just go, go outside. Yeah. You don't need to buy that. Leading on from that, um, I'm sure you're human like the rest of us. What do you do when you find yourself in a funk? How do you lift your energy? Philippa, I'm going to tell you the answer. You ready? Yeah. Don't ever get into a funk. I never get into a funk. Why? If I see that my energy is going off the center and going off the other way, my mind has already said, wait, don't do this. Go over here and do something different. Yeah. True story, if I have a minute. Years ago, when I was 
putting all of this together, I would have been considered a manic depressive. Why? I had great days, happy days, and then sometimes stuff would go wrong, and then I'd get really depressed, and it would be like a spiral going down, down, and I get very depressed. And uh, it was a particular day I'll never forget. I was working in the lab, and I was setting up an experiment, and it takes like almost two hours to set up the experiment. And then there's a part where I have to stir the solution very slowly, because if I make any heat, the solution would polymerize and right. it wouldn't be any good. Well, I did it three times that day. The first two, you know, I did the hours, uh, then boom, it polymerized, put in two more hours, boom, it polymerized. Third time, put in two hours, boom, it polymerized. And that just, I mean, it blew my I got <laughs> and then I was uh, the kid on my shoulder was going see not good enough who do you think you are you don't deserve blah, 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 blah. and I was Ill, in the lab alone and I'm going through this dialogue blah, 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 like that and a voice there's a voice there was nobody there the voice goes don't you have anything better to do than to listen to this crap wow and I stood there for a second like shocked that there was a voice and then I thought of the question I said yeah, I'd rather go to a movie than do this. So I, there was a newspaper, picked it up, found a movie, drove off to the movie. Now the movie, I was like, back on the planet again, you know, no more depression. The next couple of times where it started to do, mm -hmm. immediately I start laughing because I remember the voice. Don't I have anything better to do? And I say, yeah, and I immediately changed my direction, go do something else. And then it stopped. Because I was the one that was creating it. I was the one that said, go do something else. Don't do this anymore. Huh. And I would stop. Yeah. About the third time was the last time. Because then it became a program. That if it started to go down, I immediately the brain would say, okay, go do something. And yeah. therefore, I never have gone back down into that funk. And it's been 30 plus years now of not being there. When it was somewhat of a daily occurrence before that <laughs> you know but it's what i want people to understand is that that's when our self-criticism gets in the way yeah and sabotages who we are it's self-criticism not criticizing out there criticizing self that interferes with the joy and happiness and health that we could have on this planet don't you have something better to do or, or more fulfilling to do and laughter is definitely the best medicine as well isn't it <laughs> Oh my God, I, I laugh all the time. I laugh all the time. Yeah, yeah, got a minute. I like to tell a little story. Okay. So, yeah. in my early days, remember, relationships really weren't working out very well. And I thought I was in a great relationship in this with this woman. And at some point, it didn't really start to work very good, started to fall apart a bit. And then she left me to get some space. But she <laughs> moved into a cardiologist's house after she went uh, from my house to his house so that the space was about the 15 minutes it took to get to the other guy's place and i was so depressed and this is wisconsin and wisconsin's like siberia in the winter time it's dark at about four o'clock and the light doesn't come on until about eight o'clock in the morning and it's cold and everything i'm sitting in my big empty house and i'm i'm really reviewing this i'm so upset and i'm sitting there and every night i would come home from work and sit in that chair and go ah, barbara you know she left me and at some point i got so mad that you know i was there alone in this dark house and i said barbara leave me alone and that voice said to me she already did that <laughs> 
<laughs> and I sat there uh, and I started to laugh. It broke that spell. Boom. Just like that. Why? As you said, laughter and humor is the most effective healing agent. She never bothered me again. Why? Because I realized she's not bothering me. I'm bothering me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Take back that power. So if I was your fairy godmother and could grant you one wish in the world, what would it be and why? What would you change well, if you could? I would change what I'm trying to do right now for the public. I would change it so that they grew up knowing how powerful they are, knowing that their consciousness was creating this, giving them the power from day one instead of taking away the power and then letting them presume to be victims. Why? I trust the public more than I trust the leadership of this world. The leadership of the world, corporations, don't give a damn about us. They just want the money. Average person on the street wants exactly the same as almost everybody else on this planet. Yeah. Happiness, joy, safety, place to live, a job to do, food, health care. That's what people want. The massive number of people on this planet all want that. And I go, then how come we're struggling? Because a small Darwinian, 1% is living off of us. And we give them that power. And I really wish if people knew who they were, we wouldn't have ever been in this place because the whole planet would be one community of people sharing a garden. And that's what we're here for. Fabulous. Well, it just mirrors the community of cells in the body that work together to create the ultimate environment within ourselves for thriving. It's so easy, yet it's so hard because the mind takes over. And as soon as you're aware, you can release that hold. And as you said earlier, you know, it's about responsibility. I think if you stop and think about how fear has been injected into us that has shut us down, we've become dependent yes. on somebody else to come up with a solution. We're no longer interdependent. We're codependent on the others. And Take a step back, actually, there's nearly 8 billion people in the world and that 1% that control it, they're insignificant. So let's give them a flick and let's stand in our own power, eh? That's it. You know, in the U.S., back when Ronald Reagan became the president, he started a process where rich people didn't pay taxes. He was supporting the rich, the Republicans. And I go, so what? I say, well, when the rich people stop paying taxes, then the burden of the support is laid on the poor people who didn't have enough money from day one. Yeah. And then you wonder why the damn thing's falling apart. And the answer is because the rich people are taking all the money out and we depend on the poor people to support the system. This is why it's not sustainable. You cannot take that much money out of the system and then depend on the remaining uh, support to come from people who have no money. Mm. And this is where we are today. Awesome. I love the way that you finish that off with the one change, because I think it would make a huge impact on the world. Is there any parting words you'd like to leave the audience with? Well, look, I never believed in spirituality. I never believed in energy and all that. I was a conventional biomedical research scientist and I had life A. But once I understood the nature of energy, once I understood that energy and spirituality were all part of the same system, and I started to put that in, I have life B. And I want to tell you, life B is the joy that really leads me to my firm conclusion, is that 
You don't die and go to heaven. You were born into heaven. This is where you came to create. The whole idea of I will die and then I'll create. And I say, no, you're creating right now in this physical world. And therefore, when you look at the world and how beautiful it was before we messed it up, imagination couldn't create anything as beautiful as that. And so really the idea is this. I live every day that I'm not waiting to die and go to heaven. I'm enjoying it right now and trying to create what I would imagine heaven to be. And guess what? It's manifesting. Fantastic. Bless cool. you. Thank you for your inspiring message, Bruce. Thank you for inviting me to be here. And I also really want to especially thank our audience because the audience, our cultural creatives uh, are looking for, give me another story because the current story isn't working really well. And so it's our audience that's going to make a difference. And I hope that what we said today in some way empowers them because I trust them more than the so-called leaders of the world who are leading us down the path that I don't want to go. <laughs> awesome bless you thanks bruce you take care thank you so much philip and i so appreciate this opportunity bye thank you remember when you're bashing your head up against a brick wall all your brain is bombarding you with bs belief systems that are a load of balls remember bruce's sage advice and ask yourself if you have anything better to do than listen to that crap Bruce is speaking at a public event at the Waipuna Centre in Auckland on the 19th of April, called Thriving in a World of Change. He's also just launched an eight-week online course called Conscious Evolution, Writing a New Human History. There's a link in the show notes for tickets and information on the course. As an avid penguin lover, it wouldn't be right to end the podcast without mentioning World Penguin Day on the 25th of April a day also established in the early 70s to mark the migration of the Adelie penguin and raise awareness of these beautiful creatures. I can attest to their loveliness. I had a great conversation with a penguin in Antarctica who told me in no uncertain terms they think us humans are really funny creatures. I'm hopeful the guests I want to introduce you to over the next few months will be as open and keen as Bruce to light up your life with inspiration. I encourage you to share the wisdom you've gleaned today and from previous episodes to help sow seeds of hope and spark conversations that create ideas and actions to make the world the kind of place we all want it to be. Make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. All feedback and reviews are much appreciated, as are your suggestions for subjects or guests you'd like me to consider. Just email me on info at philiparos.com. So until next month, have fun, dig deep and open your mind to a world of possibilities. Live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential. Bye.